Today's episode is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another behind-the-scenes chat with another amazing audio drama creator. I am here with Lauren Shippen currently talking about her new show, Breaker Whiskey. And Lauren, I am so freaking excited to have you. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. This is so great. I love talking to you about all things podcast. Yeah. So this is sort of a version of um, something that we usually do on our Patreon, where I grab all of my friends in audio drama and force them to talk about their shows with me (laughs) because I have so very many interesting people to talk to. So Lauren, why don't you tell um, our listeners a little bit about what Breaker Whiskey is about? Yeah. So Breaker Whiskey is a single narrator microfiction audio drama. As you said, each episode is between one and six minutes. Most of them settle around that two or three minute length. And it is about a woman in the 1970s who is driving through a very empty America trying to find if there's anybody else out there after something happened in 1968 that made everybody disappear. And we don't know what exactly happened. She has been sort of in hiding for several years. uh, And as this is her first venture outwards, we also don't necessarily know why that's the case until later on. And it's all recorded through a CB radio that I fixed up. It's her missives out on a CB radio to, you know, to try and find other survivors of what presumably was some sort of apocalyptic event that occurred six years prior. I immediately baby duckling imprinted onto Whiskey because (laughs) she is my favorite kind of female character, which is mess, but not in a hot way. Um, (laughs) I love that. Yes. Yeah. And both of both of our shows definitely have we we have two. You've got one. Yes. Female protagonists who are very much, quote unquote, complicated women. Yes. And if you'd like to know what that means, just check our iTunes reviews. You will have many, many presumably cis men explaining what that is and why they don't like it. Oh, no. Well, wait, yeah, for the for the Breaker Whiskey patrons, do you want to explain a little bit of what um, your show is about and, and the two lead characters? Yes, thank you. So Where the Stars Fell, uh, I tend to describe it as what if the odd couple was about fist fighting God, but the more like, complete answer. That's actually a perfect description. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Um, The the more complete answer is that it follows the story of uh, Dr. Edison Tucker, who is a cryptozoologist who comes to the strangest town in America, Jerusalem, Oregon, to prove the existence of the supernatural and sidecar why she has for her entire life been physically unable to die. She heals from everything. And while she is there, she is staying in a cabin with the infamously reclusive fantasy author, Lucille Kensington. And 
at the, we learn in the first episode, but they do not learn until later that Ed is the Antichrist, Lucy is her guardian angel, and they have to work together to stop the Judeo-Christian, heavily more Judeo rapture from coming to first Jerusalem and then the rest of the world. And you probably heard the phrase, the Antichrist and her guardian angel, and immediately understood where that was going to lead to. <laughs> and it's and it's so good. I mean, the the relationship between them and the, the the characters that they both are is so complicated. Like it's it's chewy. Like that's the way that I describe it. Like they're they're like chewy characters with a chewy dynamic. If that makes sense. Like I want to like they're, they're two on women it, you know? who are like genetically engineered to completely on accident push every single one of the others like pain points. Yeah. Like when I was writing the very first scene where they meet in episode one, I had just like a checklist of everything that like Ed and then Lucy were like personally really insecure about. And I tried to hit every single one in that whole interaction. Which is, is I'm so curious what made you like sort of, yeah, like start a, a show that way or sort of like what made you want to build a show around that dynamic? Because that is something that I think, again, we share in that we find out that, you know, Whiskey has left behind this woman that she's been living with, Harry, Harriet, for the last six years. And I conceived of their relationship in the exact same way, where it was like these two people despise each other. And what happens when you have to live with a person you despise in a really difficult situation? And so like, and for for me, it's just that like, you know, I, 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 I yeah, I want that, that chewy dynamic of, you know, enemies to question mark, question mark. And was that kind of your intent as well? I mean, this is fiction podcasting. So if you put like two people of similar gender presentations in a house together and they don't like each other, it's basically saying, you guys know what's going to happen. Yeah, you know, you know where this is going. This <laughs> welcome, welcome to fiction podcasting, where enemies to lovers is probably like a bigger tag than say comedy or drama. <laughs> That's so true. Why do we, why do fiction podcasters love enemies to lovers so much? Gay people? Yeah. Like, gay people. <laughs> but also, I mean, it's good, it's good character work because as, as much as like, I also love writing like very sweet dynamics where like Mike and Sufi, where they're like super healthy and like adore each other from the very get go. I think the reason that enemies to lovers especially is like so fun to write is because it is like inherent character development. Um, I hold Pride and Prejudice as like the gold standard. And it's the gold standard for a reason, because you have two characters who are both starting out as flawed individuals who are in need of development. And that development is facilitated by the romance. But most importantly, they are not allowed to be together and consummate that romance until they have grown enough as people to be in a place where that can realistically happen. And that was like my, that, that that's the reason it takes two seasons, spoilers, for Ed and Lucy to get together. Like they have to grow as people and learn how to communicate before they're able to like, you know, kiss. Yeah, yeah. And like what kind of person can force you to grow in in the sort of most impactful way, it's like it's going to be the person who can push all of your buttons, right? It's going to be the person who who for whatever reason immediately makes you aware of all of your flaws, and that's like that's such a fun that's such a fun dynamic to play with. And I I realize I completely like derailed our <laughs> derailed you and no, and this me is from the setup. question that, that you were that you were asking about like complicated women. I mean, the other thing is that like it's even more interesting at the beginning because like 
they don't know that they're pushing each other's buttons at all. It is this inability to communicate and talk to each other and speak each other's languages, each for their own reason. And part of their sort of relationship arc of going from enemies to friends, which I believe is the most important middle ground if you're going to make the relationship last, to lovers, is learning how to speak each other's language and, like, communicate like adults. Yes. <laughs> totally, totally. It's, yeah, and it's something that people, for whatever reason, do kind of reject instinctually when it's women. Like, I think that that's, that's a particular kind of, of dynamic that we're very used to in male or male presenting characters of the, the inability to to communicate and sort of the, you know, pushing each other's buttons and and having a, a friction-filled dynamic and 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 also having those individual characters having flaws. And when it comes to women, I mean, yeah, you, you said you get a lot of reviews from people being like, mm, how dare these these women have flaws? <laughs> I believe my favorite uh, my favorite one to look for is the term screeching harpies. That's been used oh, like three times. Yep. It's always fun. Yep. Classic. Oh my gosh, that's so annoying. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, I, I I love this kind of female character because like I I my friend finally got me to start watching Veep and I watched the first episode and I was like, oh, this was made in a lab for me. Everyone is terrible, but the women are the worst of all. I this love is great. Veep. <laughs> but I think that makes them so interesting because you know there are there are female characters who are allowed to be, for lack of a better term, morally impure. We have a whole really fascinating history of you know, how writers have gotten around the women always have to be morally upstanding and they have to be good wives and good mothers and whatnot. Obviously, the most known one being the femme fatale, which has been Sidecar, a really interesting archetype to play with in BB, a character who usually is in a female body, but in the timeline of the show is in a male one. And Max does a really good job with that. But especially as we are seeing like this current wave of feminism being like, did you know that women can like suck? And that also is a quality because we can suck just as much as guys in those exact same ways. It's It's been both heartening to see those kinds of female characters and also just exhausting to see the backlash at it. Yeah. And I think this is something, too, that it's like we we go through this particular cycle in various ways in various eras, right? Yeah. It's like I'm sure that there was enormous backlash to the femme fatale when that first really began to appear in books and movies, right? Um, and I think in the sort of 90s and 2000s, it was the whole like strong female character thing, right? And some of those strong female characters are like legitimately very complicated and flawed. Like, you know – unfortunate writer origins aside, like Buffy Summers is still like a incredible feminist character. Like she is complicated. She she is a strong female character without sort of that being her o- only trait. Because I think that then after Buffy, a lot of sort of strong female characters became like, oh, well, what if we have a woman, but we just write her as if we're writing a man. And so we give her, we sort of make her like hard edged and tough, but then we don't actually give her any dimensionality. And it's like, no, what you've done is you've just, you've just reinvented a flat female character. You've just put a different dressing on it. And it's like, no, like actually, you know, you can have a variety of 
sweet to tough, feminine to masculine, you know, like you can have a whole range of of qualities in a character and she can still be complex and she can still be, you know, a, a, a good representation of women in the sense that it's like she can be representative of like what a woman might actually be like in the real world versus like, this is what all women should be. When you said like, just write her like a man, I think that we're sort of seeing a different version of that that actually works in the sense of like, you know, there are, there's a history of fandom latching onto male characters and like getting so obsessed with them, even if they're like not as complicatedly written, that's a string of words that sucks. And, and they will like give all of this depth to them. And I've seen sometimes, especially in shows that are like written by queer and trans writers, the idea of, okay, so what if we wrote a character that was literally like that kind of male character? He's complex, he's tortured, he is like, he sucks, but we literally just had it played by a woman. And I think like one of my favorite examples of this is Gideon from Gideon the Ninth of like, that is like your classic asshole with a heart of gold archetype with all of that dimension and complexity that just happens to be in the body of a butch lesbian. And it's why she's like so beloved by the audience because we as an audience are craving that kind of complexity, especially in like more masculine female characters. Absolutely. And actually like, I think that a, a weirdly a great example of that from a writer who cannot write a female character to save his life, Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin like has never talked to a woman. I'm convinced about this, but the- <laughs> Well, he's talked to Andrew Garfield. That's like halfway there. <laughs> Fair. But like- I want to clarify, I love Andrew Garfield so much. Oh, he's my princess Diana. He's delightful. He is such a, he's, yeah, he's truly a princess Diana. That's exactly it. But the to me that the best that the best female character that Aaron Sorkin has ever written is CJ from The West Wing, and that character works eighty percent because Allison Janney is amazing, but also because that character was a man. That character was written for a man, and then they got Allison Janney to do it. But that was the only way that Aaron Sorkin was able to write a female character who like felt like a human being was that he, he actually wrote a male character, and then I think the network was like you don't have any women in this show. Like, we should have a woman here. Yeah. Didn't something similar happen with Jerry on Succession? Like, oh, that's I would not why be surprised. She's yeah, I, from what I heard, and I could be wrong, I think the character was, like, originally intended to also be played by a man. Um, and J. Cameron Smith was, like, so good in the audition that they were like, well, we have to give her a role to play. Let's just change Jerry's gender. And especially, like, in the first season, you can see this is definitely a role that was written for like a powerhouse businessman, but because the role is inhabited by a female presenting body, it's so much richer. Yeah. No, that's that. That would make so much sense, actually. I could really, yeah, that, yeah, that would make a lot of sense. Because I think the difference is that like when people were writing female characters that were just basically men copy pasted, it was very much like still sexified. Like she can be like a functioning alcoholic and a total mess and her like life is a wreck and she's a serial dater, but she looks great doing it and her hair is always perfect. While in a more modern iteration, you're seeing something like, yeah, she's all of those things and she looks horrible. Like, oh my God. There is a degree of gender presentation in voice. 
right? Yeah. And, and like, and, preaching and, to the choir here. <laughs> and like that can that can go in a bunch of different directions, right? But it, but I, I do think that it is something also that regardless of sort of what the gender presentation of the voice is, there's still so many aspects of that character that the audience is not seeing in terms of, you know, the way that they look and the way that they present and the, the, the you know, how, how much of a mess they are and how well-groomed and what they're wearing. And I think that that, yeah, that like sort of takes some pressure off in some ways of like, of, of writing these, these, you know, like complex female characters and not having, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but like not having that complexity undercut by some sort of like CW casting of like an incredibly hot person who no matter what you do is always just going to be incredibly hot. And that's not to say that incredibly hot people can't be complicated, right? But that I th- and that's not the fault of of good looking actors, right? It's the fault of the way that I think a we costume and make up those people, and b the way that like th- the audience has been trained to think like oh well as long as this woman's fuckable like you know it's it's okay that that she's a mess like as long as i still want to have sex with her then that then everything else is fine and that's like the important thing and it's like no 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 no. like that can be part of it right like a woman can still be a sexual being but like the the important thing is that she has a range of complex attributes yeah that reminds me of so i'm watching the new laura crone video on the pink aisle in crime fiction and just talking about like the effect of gone girl and riley sager and all that stuff and she makes such an interesting point, which is that so many of the adaptations of these domestic noir books fail because they cast really beautiful people. Um, and you can't really believe that, like, this woman's life is falling apart when she's, like, perfectly made up and looks like Kristen Bell or something. And it's why A Simple Favor worked, because they just leaned into the glam of it. Like, oh, look, this is Blake Lively and Anna Kendrick, and it's some lesbian undertones, and they're all super hot. Isn't this fun? Yeah, totally. Totally. I think, I think, and I actually think that that is something that did work in Gone Girl specifically, because I think that Gone Girl is Amy's so much- pretty. She's gorgeous. Yeah, exactly. It's so much about being that woman, like being the, the cool girl, you know, the effortless pretty one. But I think that then it's like, people tried to just replicate that model without realizing the intentionality behind that character being pretty, right? And I think that that's the, and you know, the, these are all elements of writing, you know, female characters not in a vacuum, right? It's like when we're writing female characters and we exist in the real world, like their physical appearance and the way that other people perceive them is inevitably going to be part of it, depending on sort of the setting that you're putting them in. I mean, this is something that I've very happily avoided in Breaker Whiskey because she doesn't interact with anybody in person because the world's empty, right? <laughs> and it's something that, like, you know, who who knows? Maybe someday I will have to confront in the narrative um, because... Whiskey, who are you wearing, honey? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Your appearance as a, you know, female presenting person in the world is something that, like, has more of an, more of an effect on the way that you move through the world than if you're a, a male presenting person to an extent, right? I think that there's, like, there's, there's complexity within all of that and obviously the way that male presenting people dress or groom or whatever or look, you know, affects the power that they have access to and the way that they're treated by other men and all that kind of stuff. But it's all complex, you know, and it, and it's frustrating when people try to flatten out one gender experience to one particular thing, which I think is sort of the point of all this. Yeah. And I like what you said about just um, uh, not writing it in a vacuum because I found that like, the backlash against those kinds of characters tends to be so much more vitriolic if they are 
not shown in any way to be attractive or attracted to men. Like Ed is bisexual, Lucy is a lesbian, but they are in a relationship together. And aside from like one moment in episode six, the only times that they are presented real like alternate love interests are other women. And it gets so much more complicated and so much more, at least especially like in my experience, being like a very gender non-conforming butch lesbian, vitriolic when you show this kind of a cis man, a female character that he is not attracted to and is not attracted to him because then the fantasy is gone and it's just a person and it's just a person. I think that, yeah, a certain type of man is then unable to ignore the fact that women have agency and behavior that is not affected by men, right? Which is true of all women, regardless of whether or not they're attracted to men. But when a, a woman isn't trying, isn't, you know, gaining a man's affection even isn't even a possibility for a woman, all of a sudden, you know, a certain type of man has to confront like, oh, wait, like a woman's life doesn't revolve around her relationship to men. And it's like, yeah, no woman's life revolves around her relationship to men. All of our lives are are affected by our relationships to men, whether or not we're attracted to them because of the patriarchy. <laughs> and because, you know, we all have relationships to at least one man, you know, in our lives, um, whatever that is, whether it's familiar or friendship or romantic or what have you. But um, I think that, yeah, that's something that makes makes a certain type of cis straight man very uncomfortable. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. One of the other things that I really, really enjoy about Whiskey is that, you know, she's not just a quote unquote complicated female character, but she's a kind that especially in like queer spaces we don't see a lot, which is one who likes a lot of not just traditionally masculine things, but traditionally rural and Southern things like I I knew that I was going to love this character when she mentioned missing being able to listen to country music. Because it's like, and this gets into my old, my my own like personal baggage as like being somebody who is like from the South and feels a little bit weird in queer spaces when there are the jokes of like, oh, we should let Florida fall into the ocean or whatever. Because, it, you know, it kind of feels a little bit like you're caught between two worlds. So it's always wonderful to see characters that I connect to so much being like, I am a complex woman. I am queer and also I like this and this and this that is not traditionally associated with more progressive spaces. Yeah. No, I mean, that's that's really great to hear. And it's something that I've really enjoyed exploring because I am, the, I think, the opposite of you in the sense that, like, I did – I grew up in New York. I grew up in a very, like, sort of, you know, classic Northeast. And I was very lucky in a very progressive family. Like, I didn't really, like, you know – hear real country music until I was in college. Like, it just wasn't something I was Oh my God, that's so sad. I only heard the stuff that was on the radio, which was like, you know. Bad. Bad, yeah. Um, And so there's been a, a real journey for me as a person in exploring all of these different elements of culture and American culture and, yes, queer culture, right? 
in my, you know, 20s and now my 30s of all the stuff that I missed growing up. And so, yeah, in writing Whiskey, like I wanted to sort of, you know, her her relationship to to Harry is sort of in absentia at the moment because she's left Harry behind and they have no way to communicate. But like Harry is sort of the stand-in for I think the the person that I I could have been, I think, if I was a little bit like less curious or a little bit more sheltered or like, you know, was a little bit more of a snob where it's like, you know, she's this like New York artist who like, you know, has a, a lot of opinions about, you know, like what art should be. And I think that probably, yeah, you know, we haven't heard that much about about the details of the relationship, but like. I'm sensing yeah. an Andy Warhol moment coming. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but yeah, it's like she, you know, I think said, you know, a lot of stuff to to Whiskey when they were first getting uh, to know each other that, like, was very condescending and very rude and, like, being, yeah, exactly that kind of, like, like, maybe well-meaning, progressive queer person saying, yeah, wouldn't it be great if Florida just fell into the ocean? And it's like, well, no. I mean, like, there's a lot of people in Florida who love living there and who, you know, deserve to live the lives that they want to live in that state, right? Yeah. Think of all the Disney gays. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and I try not to, but think, but of, think them. of them. Think of think of the Disney gays. <laughs> and and so yeah, like it's been fun to sort of write from the perspective of the of the character that is like less representative of the person that I am. And and but that's still like, you know, I think shares a lot of my tastes in a lot of ways, even if I wasn't necessarily like raised in that in that culture. The season three finale of where the stars fell was like this whole double arc of talking about what is Ed's relationship as a masculine woman as a queer person to the South and to Appalachia and where she grew up and the culture of where she grew up. Because so often we see when we write, you know, masculine of center women, we, we tend to like give them traits that are very inherent to the culture in which they were raised, whether that's like, Oh, the the upscale butch lesbian from New York who wears like a suit and is like very rich and whatnot, and we 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 tend to see when that culture is like the South and rural areas and lower income areas. It's it's very much like the big dumb woman who needs to be like fixed by a man or whatever is is something that unfortunately happens a lot. And so number one, it was important to me to show that like, yes, there are parts of this place that Ed came from and the culture that she adopted that definitely need to change, but there are also really good and important aspects of it. Like there was the whole monologue about the history of country music and how it is a very collectivist when it is at its best genre and how a lot of Southern masculinity is about like being the rock, being the person that the people that you care about can rely on. You know, th there, there's a reason that I like got really into fixing up furniture and doing stuff around the house. And now that's what my friends ask me to do. I, I like that whiskey has kind of some of the flaws associated with that culture that we tend to just see in masculine or in just see in male characters, because it is really interesting when you put those on a female character, because of course you have to ask the question, okay, so where did she get that from? Because it wasn't by accident. That's just not how being raised female works in this society. Yeah. I, that's, that's one of those things, the, the sort of more, I guess, like toxic masculine traits are ones that I really enjoy exploring like the sort of like 
yeah, like a, a certain degree of like stubbornness or unwillingness to sort of talk about her feelings or, or what have you. And I think that like, yeah, for for her, I think that comes very much from the fact that, you know, her her mother died when she was young and she was raised by a father who was, you know, trying his best. And then he died when she was 15. And so she was sort of on her own. And like the only thing she really knew how to model was like a man who knew how to like survive on his own. Right. How do you feel about The Last of Us, Lauren? Oh, Tell us more. Nothing. I have no feelings about The Last of Us whatsoever. We can't, we can't start talking about The Last of Us. That'll become this entire <laughs> become thing. become the entire thing. Well, yeah. And like, that's like one of my like, yeah, favorite dynamics in media writ large is like, gruff older man scrappy teen girl father-daughter relationship and it's interesting because I think that like I think that that's something that you know whiskey has the toxic toxic masculine traits because of the situation she was raised in whereas like I actually think I have some of those toxic masculine traits and it's something that like you know I've worked on through my life just because like I because there's a, a particular strain of northeast male repression around feelings and around sort of stubbornness that I think is just sort of like universal across like no matter where you are. Um, and that I think, you know, like either, I, yeah, is is me like modeling the, the, the male role models in my life or also just like something that's just like inherent to the culture that I was baked in. And so it is, it is, it is interesting. And I think also too, because like there's and this is like, I guess, like a more like a, this is a much longer conversation, but I'm just having this this thought now. Like there is actually that strain of particular kind of like masculine repression in Northeastern women, like sort of the, the wasps, right? The the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant sort of group. It's like you don't talk about your feelings ever. Like you just don't. And that's like we think of that as like a very male trait. But I think that, yeah, like it is something that certain groups of women can also perpetuate. And again, like that's a much larger conversation. I'm not a sociologist or an anthropologist. So like I don't know why or why that is. But it's just, yeah, it's interesting. I was a sociology minor for like two semesters in college. Well, there you go. You can tell me. So clearly I know everything <laughs> about it. <laughs> No, one of the one of the things that that also interests me is like the way that these female characters are written, but it's it's not just like a man copy pasted and they don't experience the world as a man does. Like as as someone who like is is a butch and is got like a whole gender situation going on, one of my biggest pain points is when people say that like gender non-conforming towards the masculine side women and women adjacent people such as myself don't experience misogyny or like benefit from the patriarchy because we are presenting so masculinely. And like, first of all, you remember the bit that I just said about how like gross guys don't like it when they meet a woman that doesn't want them and they don't want? Yeah, that. But also it's like you said, it completely flattens that gendered experience. So it's always interesting when you have more like traditionally masculine female characters who are complex like that to still get to remind the audience, hey, this person goes through the world and they're still perceived as female and they experience life with that baggage and with those boundaries. The, the other thing that I that I thought about was I like how like all three of these characters are like tough women, but they're not moms. Because I feel like sometimes the only time that female characters get to be like hardened and tough and like have nuance to that experience is when they're moms, when they have the excuse of, oh, I'm caring for kids just by myself. And so I've had to toughen up to do this. It's like, no, there are other reasons that that can happen and they're interesting to explore. 
I love that. I I would not have, I think, like put that to like that wasn't really a thought that that occurred to me in thinking about these three characters. But you're absolutely right. And I think, I think even more on like the the even sort of like broader level, like not to say that that these any of these characters are uncaring, right? But because I think that there's so much nuance to to all of them. But like, I think so often even female characters that aren't moms yet still sort of have like the nurturing thing as one of their driving forces, right? And it's like, I don't think that that has to be a driving force for a female character. I think it can be part of their character. But like, yeah, I, I think that that's another element on, the, on an even broader scale of just like we if if a woman doesn't have a child to take care of, like, well, then she's got to be taking care of everyone else or she's got to be trying to have a child or trying to take care of everybody else or like, and I think that there's ways in which a female character can still show care for it for another character or or be nurturing and also selfish and also sort of self-centered and, all, you know, it's like all of these different things that seem in direct contrast to nurturing, which I guess is also just like part of writing a complex character is like you and I think something that people have a really hard time with, even actually in male characters sometimes, that um, that I see like these reactions a lot in fandom of like, how could this character do this when they're like this? And it's like, have you ever met a human person? Like human people are full of incredibly contradictory traits. Like you can be incredibly nurturing and also incredibly selfish. And like those things will present in various ways, but that doesn't mean that they cancel each other out. And I think, I think sometimes across the board, people have hard time with like nuance and contradictory traits. Sure. I mean, there was a post that um, went around on Tumblr a while back that was like, I want you to describe your favorite female character to me, but you cannot use the phrases girl boss or mom friend. Like you cannot describe her that way. And so many people couldn't do it or they like fucked it up in a different way because, you know, if she's not the girl boss, then she's like the surrogate mom friend who's like taking care of everybody else. And it's like, you can do other things. That's honestly like kind of the way that Gabe started a little bit of like originally. And you can tell in season one, she was written to kind of be like a guiding figure or kind of like a motherish figure for Ed and Lucy. And part of the reason that we like dropped like the, you know, nickname of Mama Gabe and just like ended up going with, yeah, it's Gabe now is number one, it is far more interesting to just like have this character be so masculine presenting and then also voiced by Kira. But the other was that Gabe got like 12 times funnier and more interesting when we basically made her a libertarian. <laughs> Not in the like, I want to lower the age of consent way, but in the, the government, heaven, needs to leave me alone yeah, needs so to I get can out do what business. I want. Sleep with the enemy. <laughs> I love that. She, she basically became like a combination of Ron Swanson and Sparks Nevada, but like portrayed by a female body. And it's so interesting of like, wow, she is one of the most genderly weird characters in the show. And it is all because we just decided we're going to write her like this specific male archetype. Yeah. And I do think that that can get you so many, so many places. And I think too, what's, what's really fun, you know, I think in like that, that character is a great example too. Cause I think that like you can get something particularly interesting when you take a character who is maybe one particular kind of archetype, right? Like the nurturing sort of guiding light. And then add this, again, like completely sort of what seems contradictory element to them. And you get something really unique out of that that still feels real. Is there, I'm curious, I don't know that I have an answer uh, for this myself, but is there a particular kind of like 
gender expression or particular archetype or like, you know, type of character that you have yet to explore that you like kind of want to sink sink your teeth into. I'm going to cheat just like a little bit because it technically hasn't come out in full yet. But um, just the other day, I um, went and did some recordings for the crossover that we have with Fox and Stallion, which is going to be our Halloween special. And eagle-eared listeners will know that because Fox and Stallion takes place in the Victorian era in London, the characters from Where the Stars Fall that will be joining them are Gabe and BB in the bodies slash disguises that they had in Victorian England 1800s, which is Gabe is in the body of a man and BB is in the body of a woman. And that is so interesting, especially as like someone who is voicing that version of BB because it feels like camp how much these two characters are written in specifically gendered ways. And in like the normal show, you're listening to it and you don't really think about it too much. But like you can kind of like tell a little bit that like, oh, Kira is voicing Gabe as if she were like playing a man and Max is voicing BB as if he were like playing a woman. And then when you take those like gendered performances and put them into their traditional bodies, like I said, it just kind of feels like camp. And it was so interesting in the recording session getting to getting to play that version of BB because it is pretty much the only time I can remember playing a female character and not feeling dysphoric about it because it was like doing drag. Right. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Like she's so stereotypically femme fatale and not in the way of like, oh, it's a femme fatale, but she's queer. So there are like these subversions of it or, oh, it's a femme fatale, but he's like a gay man or a man whore or whatever. So there's that subversions. There's no subversions happening here. This is the rote trope cut and pasted onto a character with that voice. And when you take that trope and put it back on its like traditional body, you start to realize, oh, this feels different. These interactions feel different. This dynamic feels different. Yeah, I mean, like, this is this is the cool thing about playing with any character that is, like, the characters you play with who are, you know, like, biblical and, and immortal and, you know, like, sort of, you know, like, mythical is that you can drop them into different bodies because I love the idea of sort of this, like, character drag of 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 taking something very classic and somewhat flat like a femme fatale but it's made it's given dimensions by the sort of character occupying that particular mold um which i think is is super interesting oh man i'm excited to hear that crossover well it's what i it's part of why i decided that like ineffable beings will have like a different form every single time that they hang out on Earth because I, like, wanted to give all the amazing voice actors that I know chances to portray these characters and really play with how their dynamics are seen by the audience and interpreted by the actors when they are in differently gendered forms. Like, when when Lauren, Lauren Grace Thompson, was voicing Mike in our Christmas special and then also Max, again, was voicing Gabe but just, like, doing his Bob Belcher from Bob's Burgers impression, which, if you have not heard That's it... That's amazing. Is, like, terrifyingly accurate. Like, my jaw... You, if, if you listen to the season two bloopers, Will, you can, like, hear my jaw drop. But... It's that dynamic between them when you have, for lack of a better term, the genders reversed, 
sounds entirely different than like in the show proper when Mike is voiced by a man and Gabe is voiced by a woman. And it's been super cool just to hear how different it sounds when you are when you are picturing these different characters in terms of like differently gendered bodies and all the baggage that comes with it. Like Gabe and BB's whole thing is way more uncomfortable when BB is a woman and Gabe is a man than in the show proper. And that is incredibly intentional. Yeah, no, that's so interesting. I love I love that. Getting to play with all of those different dynamics is must be so fun. So um, to sort of go in the direction of wrapping it up, my big question for you is what were your biggest inspirations for whiskey as a character oh god i mean i do i do think that yeah like joel miller from the last of us does sort of like loom over a lot of a lot of my thinking um i'm right there with you i'm right yeah. there with you <laughs> wow ed's dad joe wonder who came up with that <laughs> Yeah, so I think I think um I think that was a big inspiration. And actually, I mean, not to just be like, this is the last of us. Um, but the specifically the dynamic of um Bill and Frank uh from The Last of Us from the game specifically, actually. Yeah. And like, and it's like, what if what if it was Bill and Frank, but like they Alpha couple. Right. Like what if what if it was Bill and Frank, but instead of what we see in the TV show, like they just lived together for six for six years without ever actually getting to the point that like Bill and Frank get into the first day that they meet. Right. It's like and and just sort of what is that like very toxic relationship look like when there's all of this like unexpressed feeling just like in the mix constantly. And, and you know, we'll we'll get into eventually like why there might be baggage between them and all that kind of stuff. I literally sent you like a um, a, a song from uh, Tallahassee yes. um, by the Mountain Goats. And I was like, oh, OK, so Harry and Whiskey are just the alpha couple. Yeah, yeah. Like they, yeah, they're, I'm very excited to um to explore their dynamic more. Thank you so much for for having me on to talk about all this stuff. It's so fun to, to talk to you about all of this. Yes, this was awesome. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. Welcome to Beyond the Dark. Sub-level 19 was nothing like the other floors at Machinko. There were no alabaster workbenches, no spotless white carpets. Here, it was dank, dark, and that noise. A humming, throbbing sound like a sickly heartbeat hiding behind the whir of a great machine. A large metal cage loomed out of the darkness, backlit by an iridescent blue monitor, on which a cursor blinked idly. A metal panel slid out of an aperture in the cage near the monitor, and suddenly the cursor came to life. It read, Insert hand here. Beyond the Dark a sci-fi anthology by Mark R. Healy, creator of The Strata. Find it at beyondthedarkpodcast.com or anywhere you listen to podcasts.